Hey, Pops, uh, what is that? Tell me what we're uh, gaping at. Well, right here, Junior, is the greatest invention, the story of which I am about to reveal. Uh, well, Frost me, Papa, can it be your intention to bat your chappers over nothing more than a wheel? Your brain is all tied up in a sling. To think a wheel is such a great thing. Well, you young whippersnapper, you name me a better invention. Since, Bill Daddy-O, uh, try this for size. But like a don't you dig the airplane to be greater. Why, without the old wheel, that thing would just go to pop. Uh, the motor car? Now, that was no second rate. But take away the wheel and that invention is shot. There's not a single thing you can find that ever did as much for mankind. Look here, Pop, you must be in the wrong scene. Not me. Let me toss some more examples at you. The typewriter. Wheels. The steam engine. Wheels. Ain't I with these cotton gin? Wheels, wheels, wheels. The sewing machine. Wheels. The washing machine. Wheels. Never knew so many things depended on wheels. And you can keep on naming them, son. But there's a wheel in every last one. So come on, Junior, let's go back through the ages Way back in the days that I can hardly recall And watch what happens through the various stages Beginning from the time when there were no wheels at all Now tell me, who are we gonna meet on this deal? Why, the inventor, son uh, The inventor? Yes, the inventor of the wheel Mm -hmm. you know, we're finding fragments of this global civilization all over the world, but we're having to push, you know, the dates further and further back. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grime America Show. We're going to be chatting with Scott Crichton a little bit later about his book, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, and all sorts of fun stuff, him getting chased around in Egypt. But first, as always... Grimey Graham Dunlop, how's it going, buddy? Not bad, Darren Grimes. <laughs> the grimy one himself. The grime. Grime daddy. <laughs> the grimest of the grime. The grime daddy. <laughs> the grime meister. Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing well, buddy. We've got Red Pill Junkie here with us, too, for this intro, and it's good to have you back, Red. Yeah, guys, lo long time no Skyped. <laughs> yeah, we miss you. It seems like too much time goes by between our, our visits. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was supposed to join you guys last week, but unfortunately, ah, life got in the way. And by life, I mean some asshole who <laughs> scraped my, my car, you know, right in the middle of traffic. Do you guys just keep going in Mexico City like they do in Cairo? or? Uh, I should have kept going, you know, because in the end, uh, stopping and complaining and waiting for the insurance agent didn't actually solve anything you know in the end the guy was no you hit me you know i didn't hit you and then my insurance agent will say yeah well you know if that's how if, if that if that's his position then if he calls his insurance policy you know uh, his agent is going to back him up and then uh, there's, there will be no other choice but let the law handle it, you know, and, and try to, to lay blame on the real culprit, you know, and that's just another 
fucking can of worms, you know. Uh, and in the end, uh, because of the uh, levity of the uh, of the actual damage to my car, you know, it was only you know uh, scrape of paint, you know, no actually, no, no, not an actual dent, you know, in the in the in, in the car. Uh, I decided to fucking drop it, you know, and say, well, fuck it, you know, I'm just going to. Each will go on <laughs> with its own uh, uh, damage, you know. Yeah. Just fix it up with some nail polish. Well, no, maybe I was thinking of having the the whole car uh, painted, you know, at some point. Now I guess I have a uh, more of an incentive to do so. Like red, red, like a red pill. Would you paint it? Red? You know, actually, when I. When I was going to, to, to buy this car, you know, uh, it was in 2008, I was going to buy a red one. And my father talked me out of it. You know, he said, no, you, should never, you, should, you shouldn't buy a red car because it is you know, a, a statistically proven that all red cars suffer, suffer more accidents. What? Really? And I, and I was like, what? Where did you yeah, get that from? Seems like Mexican I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was, it's something more of a, a, a normal engine. And even if there's such a statistic, I'm sure there, uh, it is incredibly biased, you know? Maybe because of the idea that people who I buy think- red cars are people who have, you know, this uh, need to brag on or something like that maybe that's why they're more careful they're uh, uh, less careful when they're, when they're driving but, I, I you know, swear I, fucking I've been charged a premium for a red card insurance really? I mean, uh, uh, you really? I, wonder, I can't remember if that's an old wives tale or if that's something that actually happened I saw, I've had this conversation before about red cars and insurance mm, really? Yeah. oh my god I've never heard of it before well, I just thought you were going to say because it, it carries the dirt more or something like you know a black car and a white car get way more dirt uh, yeah, than a sure, gray sure. car you know? no they don't they just yeah. look they more do. dirty well, they don't get oh well, yeah they look more dirty yeah semantics yeah, yeah, well, maybe our, our listeners could help us out with this. You know, yeah, maybe there's got to be some insurance folks out there. there. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Huh. Yeah, so Darren's had his <laughs> Darren's had his challenges <laughs> with auto insurance companies. <laughs> Sorry, Darren. Oh, I they're, help they're, they're really, they're really the worst, man. You know, and now I know why people in Russia all have uh, dash uh, ca- cameras installed on the dashboards, you know, because this is, that is really the only way in which you can prove that the other guy is fucking lying, you know, and the other guy is the one who hit you. Dash cam. I was in it Cairo kinds of speak, speaking to Egypt, because we do have Scott Crichton coming mm-hmm. up about, about that, but crossing the street in Cairo is like playing Frogger, that video game. So I don't know if it's anything like that in Mexico <laughs> City, because they're both, uh, they're both pretty huge cities but i mean uh, and and the cabs you'd be driving in these little cabs and they'd be bumping into each mm. other honking horns constantly and then actually physically like just tapping each other it's the weirdest thing and they just keep going just keep driving i do i do feel that people in mexico city need to develop some kind of sixth sense you know in order to to try to predict the intentions of the guy of the people in 
front of you or maybe behind you, you know. And the reason and the reason why I know the guy hit me was because I later later found out that he wasn't from uh, from around here in Mexico City, you know. He, he has he had plates from from elsewhere, you know, from the state of Quintana Roo, Quintana Roo in the south the southeast. So I'm sure ah this guy is this guy is a fucking foreigner, you know. No, foreigner. no, that's not very. Jesus. That's not very evidence based of you, Red. Foreigner. There's no science behind that decision. The reason I know he hit me is because he's not from around these parts. Yeah, because he wasn't from around here. He wasn't. He was. Later, I found out he was trying to find a way, a place to eat, uh, and that's why I, I'm sure he was distracted. And, shot, and I, that's why I'm sure he hit me. How did you get the that guy? Out was of actually you? A, actually the guy was a bodyguard. Now that 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 was kind of scary, you know. These people who have how do you call these uh, yeah, like things in front seven. of the car? Road rage. The, no, no, no. The things that you stall in, in, in front of your car, you know, like on trucks or something, a you know, to, to, like like in Mad Max, you know, to, to try to, in case you hit someone, you will completely tear him apart. A grill. Yeah, something like that. So this guy had a had a huge car and one of those, and that's when the moment he stepped on, he said, "Oh my fuck, this guy is." <laughs> <laughs> what 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 we in Mexico call Warura, you know, their guys are really how to be handled carefully. Uh, actually, he was pretty cordial, but in the end, yeah, I, I was started to get nervous because, yeah, because I at that point I really wasn't sure if if the guy will starting to threaten me, you know, by pulling out a gun or something. Yeah, which something which is quite common in this. In this neck of the woods. But anyway, let's let's not talk about this anymore, please. Hey, my cat killed a crow the other day. Your cat killed a crow? Yeah. yeah a big crow. It was bigger than the cat. Really? Just did, like fucked it up. Did your wife see it happen or? She seen like shortly after and a bunch of crows like gathered in the trees above. And started squawking and yeah. stuff. Ooh. There was like a big big a scene they're trying to, to plan revenge a big crow scene and then they're gonna get that cat so i've updated my yeah. stance on cats i don't think they'll do, i don't think they'll eat you when you die if you die they won't eat you i think as soon as they realize that you can't fight back they will start fucking you up for fun i don't understand remember before my stance was your cat would eat you when you die yeah but what does that have to do with a cat killing mm-hmm. crows she just kind of, they play with it. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, can't just see them playing with your face, sitting yeah. in your chest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Quit hitting yourself. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so what's Evil what's pieces. the latest? Uh, is he allowed out? Does he go outside and get surrounded by crows and stuff? They're pretty creepy, the crows. Like, they they gawk at my sister quite a bit. And they, they never forget a face, right? Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. So are there a lot of are there a lot of crows in Calgary? Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> crows and magpies. And magpies all over. Like all sometimes I don't know why some days are worse than others, but all you hear is the magpies crawling. Or would they craw? Or does a crow craw? I don't know. Yeah. That's I know those magpies are fucking ballsy, man. I've had them like steal my burger from beside me. We were out <laughs> working on lunch. Just <laughs> <laughs> 
steal your fries. <laughs> well, maybe that's what happened. What happened to Hitchcock, and that's what gave him the idea for <laughs> his famous movie, The yeah. Birds. Yeah, man, off the phone, and I had it, and now I've lost it. So it's time for the profound UFO <laughs> quote of the week, my favorite part of the show, and I've got one here. Behind yeah, the scenes, like the profound UFO quote more than the interview. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> wow. Behind the scenes, high-ranking Air Force officers are soberly concerned about UFOs, but through official secrecy and ridicule, many citizens are led to believe the unknown flying objects are nonsense. That's from the former CIA director, Roscoe Hillencotter, 1960. Mm. <laughs> Maybe you should just start your own show, The Profound UFO Quote Show. <laughs> And also, Hill and Cutter then uh, uh, joined uh, NICAP, right? Oh. Huh. What? Yeah. Huh. Some people then speculate that NICAP was some kind of hijacked yeah. By, yeah. The, yeah, by the intelligence agencies from the inside out. Well, if you are of the conspiracy theory mind, that, that's what you What's an ICAP? tend to believe. National and NICAP. Yeah. Go ahead. Investigation Committee of Atmospheric Phenomena or something like that. Or aerial, aerial phenomena, I think. Aerial yeah. phenomena, yeah. Aerial phenomena, yes. Yeah. National. Yeah. It was like before MUFON yeah. kind of thing or way back in, in that time. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the father of MUFON yeah. and it was uh, founded by uh, Donald Kehoe. And the problem I see with NICAP is that eventually older stick was saying the government knows all about it and, 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 and they're hiding it from us, you know, and demanding to know the truth, you know, which if you think about it, it's right now the same thing that Stephen, Stephen Bassett is, is uh, crying about. So we haven't made that much progress in the last 60 years or so of ufology. If you want to look at it that way. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The pessimist and the eternal optimist. Yeah. So, so we do have uh, Scott Crichton coming up, though. I want to. We should mention that a little bit, right? And we're talking about the secret chamber of Osiris, and he's done some pretty cool work. Uh, what was that? He had this uh, triangular theory, and he's uh, measuring the pyramids, and it led to the secret that chamber. Was the circle. And, you find the center. Yeah. He trying points by drawing a circle around them, and it can be outside the center of the triangle. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. And he talks about well, that. One thing is, one oh. thing is for sure is that in in Egypt, the tomb of Osiris and the Great Pyramid are probably the the ancient uh, so-called Egyptian uh, monuments that have that, that have more in common than with the rest of. The, the things that the Egyptians built. Huh. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that both the tomb of Osiris and the in, the Great Pyramid have in common the fact that they, they were built with these humongous granite blocks and also the fact that you won't find any kind of inscription or hieroglyphic or painting inside or outside those two particular monuments, you know? That's why, to me, 
it seems to suggest that those two uh, monuments were perhaps built by a previous civilization that wasn't the Egyptians. Oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. And he, he goes into talking about the, what would you call it, a metaphor or an allegory from the uh, 16 pieces of Osiris's scattered body and kind of equaling 16 pyramids from the same age. And maybe it's the age after you're talking about red, or maybe it's the age before. I'm not sure, but it's, uh, it's pretty interesting, the research he's done. Dynasties, motherfucker. Yeah, well, maybe it's before well, that. Before yeah, the dynasties, yeah. pre-dynasty. Yeah, and that's what Red's saying is pre-dynasty. the pyramids in the Osiris chamber are like pre, pre oh, yeah. the Egyptian culture that we know. Yeah, I think that's yeah, a given. Yeah, in the though. Egyptian mythology, they call around, they, they have these the parts. Term, they have the term septepi, like which means the 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 first time, the primordial time. Uh, which refers to the, the, the epoch in which the gods, you know, Osiris and Isis, and they were uh, living on the earth, and they were the first to establish the Egyptian culture. And the problem with that is that, according to Egyptian mythology, that was like, I don't remember, like 25,000 years ago or something like that. I, I'm not really sure, but it was way before what... Uh, orthodox history would permit before the moon <laughs> uh, you're not, still with that no uh, that's not we're I gonna say that i haven't listened to that i no. haven't listened to that episode okay. well hopefully you can come on next intro and we'll talk about that we'll save that one for next week okay you got some feedback what do you got what are you holding well i got i got this uh i wanted to talk up. about this uh article in the national geographic uh, why do many reasonable people doubt science and bill one of our listeners who we've been sort of emailing all these conversations back and forth uh, kind of brought it to our attention and we talked about how, I don't know, it's kind of disturbing. It's a different way. It's looking at it a different way than we do. <clears throat> and it's kind of interesting. There's a couple of ways that I'm finding interesting that they, it, like you could look at it this way and you could look at it the other way and it's, and it's basically the same information. So I wanted to kind of write a little, little rebuttal kind of about it and, Bill, Bill suggested we do a little segment. I'm going to be honest with you here. Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't read the Nat Geo article. You know, that's okay. Really? I'm going to read out the points to you. So, Red, are you ready for this guy? Yeah, sure. All right. So, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so, thanks to Bill for kind of uh, kicking this whole ball rolling here. And this, sure. is, an, this is an article, uh, I think it's by Joel Ackenbach. In, uh, in National Geo, which gets a lot of, I mean, obviously this goes worldwide and it gets a lot of views, right? And that's kind of one of his, his points was, it's kind of an opinion piece, really, not, not, not science-based, but let's, let's look at it. So he goes in talking about uh, fluoride. Um, I'm going to read some parts from the article here. And yeah, it, start, it starts talking about the, the movie of... Um, Stanley Kubrick. In yeah. Doctor Strange. Yeah, exactly. With the crazy ass general who, you know, goes and unleashes Armageddon and, uh, and the, the general believes that fluoride is part of the communist uh, plan to hijack, you know, humanity or something like that. Yeah. And it's basically making fun of it. Right. 
that 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 of conspiracy. Course. And it, so he says, actually, fluoride is a natural mineral that, in weak concentrations, used in public drinking water systems, it hardens tooth enamel and prevents tooth decay. A cheap way and safe way to improve dental health for everyone, rich or poor, conscientious conscientious brusher or not. That's the scientific mm-hmm. and medical consensus. To which some people in Portland, echoing anti-fluoridation activists around the world, reply, "We don't believe you." So he's basically saying. We live in an age where all manner of scientific knowledge from the safety of Floyd and vaccines to the reality of climate change faces organized and often furious opposition, empowered by their own sources of information and their own interpretations of research. Doubters have declared war on the consensus of experts. So, you know, we can get into that now, that little sort of statement now or later, but the main thing for me on the, the fluoride is uh, since I don't know last like six months or so. I think it was uh, nature or I, swear I used to eat like straight fluoride. That's why they give you that this explains sort. why you're so dull. <laughs> dull. <laughs> that explains it. Like slow. <laughs> that explains it. I'm slow. But didn't this come out in a top ten list of the most poisonous toxins from like either Nature or that other um, that other prestigious journal? of uh the lancet i think one of those two came out and said it's in the top 10 poisonous toxins so now it's that but in that minuscule amount we're supposed to believe that it's not going to affect us negatively but having said that i moved here from vancouver to calgary where in calgary they took the fluoride out of the water and in vancouver they had it in and i do notice my teeth are more sensitive here so but i but i've also been on a bit of a spiritual bender so maybe Maybe eat fucking candy nonstop, not candy, but what? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, about my teeth. No, but I've always, I haven't changed my diet that much since then. All I'm saying is, I would trade the if if this was true and fluoride does, you know, dull down the population. I would definitely trade that for more sensitive teeth. You would trade being duller. No, I would trade not being duller, like being, you know, brighter. Yeah. Less dull. Yeah, more open and more sensitive That's to the good. energies that are going on. Not any more dull. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let's get off my personal anecdotal stories about fluoridized water. So he goes in to talk about uh, GMOs a little bit, and uh, I'm going to skip through this because it's a pretty long article. Um, and then he talks about, in this bewildering world, we have to decide what to believe and how to act on that. In principle, that's what science is for. Science is not a body of fact, says geophysicist Marsha McNutt, who once headed the U.S. McNutt? Geological Survey <laughs> really? and is now editor of Science, the, the prestigious journal. Science is a method for deciding whether what we choose to believe has a basis in the laws of nature or not. But that method doesn't come naturally to most of us, and so we run into trouble again and again. And then... It goes on afterwards, talking about Galileo and Charles Darwin. And this is where it's interesting because you could look at it either way. But they're talking about the Earth's climate again. And um, even when we intellectually accept these precepts of science, we subconsciously cling to our in- intuitions. You know, what, what researchers call, call our naive beliefs. So, again, I just want to reiterate, I'm not, we're not against science or anything like that. I'm not against science. I think science is a valuable process. But the way, you know, science is being called on now, it's talking about 
you know, the sort of science in a bigger picture, right? And what I don't like is the dogma and the institutionalization of science. You know, it's become more of like a, a religion. Not science. Scientists. So even for scientists, the scientific method is a hard discipline. Like the rest of us, they're vulnerable to what they call confirmation bias. The tendency to look for and see only evidence that confirms to what they already believe. But unlike the rest of us, they submit their ideas to formal peer review before publishing them. Once the results are published, if they're important enough, other scientists will try and reproduce them. And then it says there's the science communication problem. As is blindly called by the scientists who study it, it has yielded abundant new research on how people decide what to believe and why they so often don't accept the scientific consensus. It's not that they can't grasp it, according to Dan Cahan of Yale University. He says... In one study, he asked 1,540 Americans a representative example sample to rate the threat of climate change on a scale of 0 to, uh, to 10. Then he correlated that with the subject's science literacy. He found that the higher literacy was associated with stronger views at both ends of the spectrum. And now this is where we get all p- polarized here. Um, mm-hmm. It continues on here. Science literally promoted polarization on climate, not consensus. So according to this guy, that's because people tend to use scientific knowledge to reinforce their beliefs that have already been shaped by the worldview. Now, we've talked about that, that a lot on the program. That has a, I, I, the guy has a point in that. You know, oh, totally. I, is, I agree. even more aggravated now in the digital age, you know, when you everyone can find their particular niche of people, of like-minded people, you know, and, and, and they will just be, you know, uh, preaching to the choir as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I totally, I do agree with that, that whole polarization thing too. Um, mm-hmm. he, he continues on here saying gone are the days where in a small number of powerful institutions, elite universities, encyclopedias and major news organizations, even the national geographic served as gatekeepers of scientific information. The internet. Yeah. Has demo- the yeah. The internet has that's democratized information, which is a good thing. But along with the cable TV, it has made it possible to live in a filter bubble that lets in only the information that which you already agree. That's that's like the the, the priest, you know, wailing and complaining about how you know nowadays no one comes to him to to, to ask him advice about their sex life or something, you know, instead of just you know checking with a doctor or as an actual, you know, professional sexologist, you know, the, 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 the priest is complaining, oh my God, you remember the good old days when, you know, the flock was obedient and they will just took you on your word, you know, and they wouldn't question your, your authority. Yeah, yeah. He's saying here that there really aren't two sides to all these issues. Climate change is happening and vaccines really do save lives. <coughs> So they go on to talk about the climate, uh, the climate gate part. So I'm almost done here. And then towards the, uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the article, he says, and it's their very detachment, what you might call the cold bloodedness of science that makes science the killer app. It's the way science tells us the truth rather than what we'd like the truth to be. Scientists can be as dogmatic as anyone else, but their dogma is always wilting in the hot glare of new research. And science, it's not a sin to change your mind when the science, when the evidence demands it. For some people, lose your funding. Well, yeah, precisely, right? 
they make it sound very simple, right? This is like science as an idealism. The, for the, some people, the tribe is more important than the truth. For the best scientists, the truth is more important than the tribe. That's just to highlight some of the points in there. But I mean, I think for, for people like us who have talked about this over and over, there's some pretty glaring uh, ideologies in there about how science should work, but maybe not mm-hmm. how it does. Well, As a reply to that, place. I would like to cite um, a blog that was posted on Scientific American, you know, of all places. You know, I mean, Scientific American is one of the most respected and most conservative uh, uh, public uh, science-related magazines in the world. And this was written by John Horgan. And the title of this blog is Everyone, even Jenny McCarthy, has the right to challenge scientific experts. And he goes on to uh, cite uh, one of his colleagues, a journalist by the name of Chris Mooney, who wrote a piece entitled, This is why you have no business challenging scientific experts. And Horgan, you know, he is definitely not uh, an anti vaccine activist, you know, he criticizes Jenny McCarthy's positions. He truly believes that and the anti-vaxxers are uh, wrong in their assert- assertions that vaccines uh, cause problems or are, uh, are uh, harmful or dangerous or risky. But he then says that about Mooney and how he cites some uh, a guy who wrote a book who says, are we all scientific experts now? Uh, it was written by a so- sociologist of science, Harry Collins. And then the guy, Horgan, says, uh, and I'm quoting here, Mooney is hardly the only person insisting you have no business challenging scientific experts. Versions of these assertions constantly pop up in debates over hot button scientific issues such as, I might, I might add, you know, climate change or uh, vaccines. Defenders of supposedly canonical views of global warming, genetic, genetically modified foods and vaccines, dismiss non-expert dissidents. Just last week, a friend and fellow journalist mocked meteorolo- meteorolo- meteorologists without climate change because they are meteorologists, not climate scientists. But here is what it gets interesting. So uh, the irony is that the no business challenging scientific experts argument applies not only to activists like Jenny McCarthy, but also to journalists like Mooney and me. After all, we journalists are outsiders and amateurs, especially compared to the scientists whose work we cover. So how dare we second guess them? And not only that, he then goes and says something like, Journalists are supposed to question claims, even if, especially if, they come from authoritative sources. Authoritative sources. A journalist who doesn't do that isn't a journalist. He is a public relations plaque helping scientists peddle their products. And that is a really, really good point. You know, I, I, th- this is something that uh, Akenbach totally missed and totally failed to mention how sometimes the, the, the role of a journalist and even a, the role of a citizen is to question authority. You know, 
does just not taking things, you know, because we are appealing to authority, just because, you know, the government tells us that we have to believe in that, you know. If I say, uh, for example, that uh, the world is not 6,000 years old, it's in actually four and a half billion years old, I'm not uh, believing that just because, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye or my uh, science teacher taught me that, you know, because there is. Hello? Oh, we might have that lost was, Red. That was unexpected. Yeah. All right, we've got Red back on the line here. I'm going to try and we're going to try and finish off the segment here. <clears throat> so, yeah, Red, I'm going to go on a little rant here about uh, the big sort of philosophical question. Like, I, I'm going to get a little bit more Uh-oh. philosophical. Like, why do you. Here comes a grant. Oh, a grant. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> like a Graham yeah. rant. Okay. All right. Why do many people Thanks for breaking that down for us? <laughs> <laughs> Why do many reasonable people doubt science? Like that's the big question here. Right. And f- number one thing, the church of experience, right? I think like how many people, how many people have had experiences that you know of, or that we've had, or the people that you love that can't be explained. Not only are they ignored by science, there's a fear of ridicule ridicule and judgment, right? Like I'm not a kook because I saw a strange craft flying in the sky and all our listeners out there, Darren would have maybe something else to say about that. So stop raising your eyebrows over there. But all our listeners out there that have precognitive dreams or OBEs or true ghosts or spirit encounters or miracles with alternative healing, ignored, ignored, ignored. Right. That is something that. For the record, I don't mean everyone who sees anything, just you. Right. Thanks, Darren. Go ahead, Red. That this is the very thing that Jacques Vallée warned about, you know, back in the 70s with, with uh, Passports to Magonia or then with the dimensions. The fact that science was turning its back to all these, um, quote-unquote, irrational phenomena that people were experiencing, you know, uh, UFO sightings, ghost encounters, you know. Find, uh, meeting uh, or, or seeing Jetty, uh, the Yeti or Bigfoot in some forest or something. And the problem with that is the moment that uh, science turned away and decided to, to, that it wasn't its concern to, to respond to, to these questions, uh, well, nature hates a vacuum. And that gap was ah. filled but all kinds of peddlers and cultists and woo peddlers and whatever you have you. And that's why then we ended up with things like Dr. Stephen Greer or maybe Heaven's Gate cult and all these people who quote unquote have all the answers. And that is why I think this is the natural consequence of the current uh, apparent uh, anti-science uh, sentiment uh, mentality in some people in the Western world. You know, that's because- that's well said. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you listen to Michael Shermer on Skeptical at all recently? Oh yes, I did. Okay, so he said something that that I have to I have to try. And this is a, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but he was saying until it can be measured, it's basically supernatural or paranormal, and it doesn't exist. Once we can measure it, then it becomes part of nature. 
So, and now I'm sort of saying my own little notes here. So basically we just throw that reality of anomalous phenomena into a category that says it doesn't exist and ignore it. Good idea. And don't just ignore it, but ridicule people who say it does exist. So until something can be measured with what kind of measurement instrument are we talking about? Are we talking about our visual measurements or I'm not mad at you. looks like you're at No, I'm just, you know, don't make me the brunt of this. I'm just saying that. I don't think that's the right way to go about it until you can measure something. It, it switches from a category of supernatural to natural because all of a sudden it becomes science. The phenomena doesn't change. I mean, unless you're talking about throwing the observer effect in there at all, but let's assume that it's the same phenomena. You can't take it from a ridicule bucket and put it into a fucking mainstream accepted scientific bucket just because you know, you have a new instrument that can actually measure something that our eyes can't see, for example. But that exactly is what will happen if all of a sudden uh, we encounter ourselves with un- incontrovertible evidence pointing out to these seemingly impossible uh, paranormal experiences. The moment that happens, these people in the other uh, camp will say, oh, we knew all along, <laughs> you know, obviously we knew all along and they will just act away as if nothing uh, ever happened. Because that is um, how human nature works. People will never uh, accept that they were wrong. You know, uh, I I think that's actually something that Terence McKenna said in one of his lectures, how in the Western world, one of the worst things that can happen to a person is to to find him or or herself, you know, in in the in the error, you know, and finding sin find themselves in the dilemma on, of accepting that they were wrong or that they, they were had, you know, they were uh, you know, gullible enough to fall in some kind of lie. Yeah, and this, part, this article seems to think that, it seems to point out that all scientists love being proved wrong and that there's no dogma at all in the peer review process. Like, you're telling me that if, if two articles get put on the peer review desk... Let's just use that as an analogy. And one of them is against the current paradigm and one of them is reinforcing the current paradigm. You think the other one's going to get any attention? Like, I believe there's dogma in that process as well. They make it sound like it's just some, you know, simple, you know, know, democratized kind of process. It is not. For sure, it is not democratized. The fact that it has to go through peer review shows that it's not uh, democratized. And... Part of me will concede that the fact that it's, it is not democratized is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. You know, that's where we, uh, we have to concede that there are some good things in how things work right now. But um, getting to that, you know, the, the good things about science is like, for example, uh, religions. Religions take hundreds, if not thousands of years to change their position. Science, it's a bit more expedient, you know, maybe it will take just a couple of decades. And to us, you know, puny little humans, that seems like a, like a lot, long time, but it really isn't. But I, 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 let me finish. So I agree with you that, that definitely something that goes against the current of the current paradigm will have a, a, a really a harder a, a harder uh, time uh, 
being proven right, you know, making, the, making its case. Uh, one example could be the existence of, uh, remember the mad cow disease? Yeah. The thing that happened in the 1990s. And then these guys whose name right now I can't remember, who came up with the idea of prions, these things that weren't really bacteria or they weren't even, even uh, viruses. They were the ones responsible for, you know, making the brains of cows and then later of people, you know, like, uh, Gruyere cheese full of holes, you know, and what happened, you know, scientists laughed and they mocked this guy, you know, and say, you know, it couldn't be done. But then, you know, what happened after 10, 20 more years of research and finding results, it turned out the guy was right. And then they were forced to give him the Nobel Prize. So it happens, you know, sometimes the paradigm can change. Yeah, they do look at it a little differently. Like when they talk about Galileo and Charles Darwin, they look at them like I look at those like as as if they weren't accepted by the paradigm of the time and they were the ones ridiculed now, but they're looking at it the different way, you know, where where science finally came through. But I I want to yeah, go sure. ahead. No, go ahead. No, they, they, yeah, I exactly. I know exactly what you mean. You know, history is always written by the victors. They are all the the ones who feel like they are in, along with Galileo and Darwin. But the the skeptics and the debunkers of nowadays, they were really right now on the side of the church and on the side of uh, yeah, yeah. You know, all yeah. the people who that, were against those novels. That's ideas. what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I want to make a couple other points here just before. And one of them is, is about, uh, you know, obviously the corruption that, that happens at the highest levels of the corporations and academia, the government and the media, you know, we hear stories about revolving doors in the government institutions of academia, people leaving the CDC, for example, to go work for Merck, you know, the vaccine maker back and forth from Monsanto and the government. We've seen those lists of all the people that are on the boards of, you know, those corporations and they've got influence in the government or have been there. I mean, as if this cannot be seen as a public uh, conflict of interest from people. Right. And it has to do with science, even though you may not think it, because we're expected to believe all these, you know, results of trials and research study, you know, that have been funded by the same industry that are, that are selling the stuff, you know, more people die from prescription drugs and illegal drugs. And we don't hear about, you know, the flu vaccines in the UK only working at 5% efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, the studies on GMOs and vaccines. So, all you know, what's happening now is the industries will pay a fine when they're found guilty and just carry on with their profit making. Yeah. One thing that is worth pointing out is that the way the, the game is played, and by game I mean, you know, scientific research, is that especially in things like uh, uh, new drugs being tested, is that these companies and these laboratories are not uh, op- Obliged, you know, they are not required. Hello? Oh, man, we lost him again. Not required to... <laughs> I think I know what he was going to say. Well, somebody doesn't like us talking about corporations making money, because here we are Yeah. three days later, new mixer <laughs> and a whole new setup, trying to finish this recording because we kept getting cut off. Um. Yeah. yeah, so that's interesting. Graham was all riled up. Actually, I know, I was, I'm all calm Lisa now. Lisa actually mentioned that uh, she could hear you 
What? Yeah, you were fucking loud that night. That's really? what I kept saying. I was like, just shut up. You're like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> granting. Grant, grant. Yeah, you're on your grant. <laughs> America granting. <laughs> I love it how new memes just pop up. So do you want to finish this off then? Yeah, let's I, finish this off. I know off. Red, kind of, Red kind of got cut off a couple times during his little rant, which wasn't too bad. Well, not a rant, you know, <clears throat> just trying to in my position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the only thing I have left really about this as far as like a theme goes is that, you know, in the media, we hear contradictions every day. You know, we talk about not knowing what to believe here, right? We hear stuff in the media like butter is good, butter is bad, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. No, now breakfast is really not that important, you know. M- milk yeah. helps you grow up strong and milk is bad. Like it goes on and on, right? Gravity doesn't exist in space. Now they're saying, oh, there is gravity in space. You know, sugar makes kids hyperactive. If now there's, there's a study that uh, apparently it doesn't. You know, so the mainstream media is just spouting all these memes and reading some government press report or native advertising without investigating anything. So I think this is part of the problem as well. And I mean, I know this article is also kind of against the media, but I think it's for a different reason. I think we have different takes on what the media is portraying. And what I see is just you know, one contradiction after another about science and whether those are bullshit articles or not, how the fuck are we supposed to figure it out? You know what I mean? It is a, yeah, it is a, it is a difficult uh, wondering, to be sure, you know. I'm, uh, I think I'm remembering right now that uh, last time we spoke uh, that I said that we are probably the first generation to be facing this uh, problem of being inundated with uh, all sorts of information and contradictory data, right? Um, because our previ- previous generations, our, our parents, you know, they were pretty content on tra- taking the word or of uh, authorities, be that uh, the government you know, mainstream media, you know, the, back in the 60s, Walter Cronkite was, was like, for, a, for an entire generation, you know, the, 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 the word of, of reason, what Walter Cronkite said was true. It, it was a no-brainer. So people were <laughs> content with uh, taking that assumption, you know, and be, uh, getting on, on with, their, with their lives. Now things are certainly not that easy, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. The challenge is exciting, and uh, this is something that I kept remembering um, during this week when I listened to our friend Alex Akiris <laughs> interviewing um, this guy, uh, Dr. Kraus, yeah, yeah, Kraus, yeah, who was uh, featured in this documentary along with Richard Dawkins. The the, the title of the documentary is "The Unbelievers," yeah. and uh, our friend Alex was re- keep repeating things about you know mentioning people like Robert Sheldrake, how uh, Robert Sheldrake is a uh, is a uh, 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 someone who has enough. Uh, knowledge and studies to to keep his ground with someone like Richard Dawkins, but uh, nevertheless, mainstream media has tried to belittle him and and 
portray him as a crackpot. And then Lauren, uh, this guy Cross was saying, well, you know, maybe, there, maybe there's a reason why some people are remaining in the, in, in the fringe. And that's when Alex just <laughs> went at it and said, no, no, no. You're just, you know, saying, you're just, uh, and now I'm, pre- I'm paraphrasing, I'm saying my own opinion, not Alex's, but I'm saying that the moment you say that, it's the moment you elevate science, uh, scientific theories as dogma. And the moment you say that scientific theories as dogma, scientists become priests. That, that, that it was not what they were intending to become in the first place, you know? Yeah, so, I, just, I just listened to that too. And, and, and Krauss, is it Krauss? Yeah. I think it's Krauss. He was saying how it's all unlikelihood, right? It's, uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, oh, it's if it's less likely, like UFOs, there's just not enough time to look into that because it's less likely. Whereas, you know, something that already fits the paradigm, you know, stick with that because it's more likely to be real, I guess, it was the <clears throat> was the thing, which is kind of frustrating because the most the most uh, the most scientifically paradigm changing things that there are evidence out there if they would spend the time to look at the things that they're ignoring because they think they're less likely. Yeah, and it's an interesting quandary. You know, these people, they erect themselves as, um, and I'm borrowing this phrase from our friend Mike Cleland, watchdog of our uh, consensus reality. Yeah. So Kraus says, you know, I, I have debated with UFO people a number of times, and at the same time she says, I haven't bothered to study a lot of UFO material because, you know, I don't have neither the time nor the inclination to study things that in my mind are unlikely to be true. But then therein lies the the paradox. If you are erecting yourself as watchdog of consensus reality, then I believe that you damn well should make the time to study what you are trying to dispute. Yes. Yes. It's not going to take a lot of time to figure out that the UFOs are a legitimate mystery. It's not going to take a lot of time, like one or two days of fucking reading and research. The problem is in science. The problem is that you have to be able to kind of put the money where the mouth is. The science costs money. I mean, science is still the best thing we've got. Maybe there's bad scientists that are dogmatic, but science is a, is a, is a, it's a process. It's yeah. a process, not exactly. a thing. So the problem is the process mm-hmm. costs money. So you can't blame science. It comes down to the fact that the fucking people throwing the money at science have an agenda. Yeah. So the money's the problem. I agree. If their money wasn't involved, then science could go look at these other things. But the problem is that's not where the money wants to go. So, yeah. I mean, if we were all billionaires and we could, we could fund that science, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But no yeah. one's going to. Yeah, this is something I, I've just recently begun to read our friend Richard Dolan's book, UFOs for the 21st Century Man. And he said pretty, pretty much what you just said, Darren. You know, the problem is that scientists, whether we like it or not, are uh, hired employees. You know, either they are employed by big corporations or universities or the government. They don't really have the... Most of them don't really have the freedom to study things that they might find interesting. Yeah. So then in the end, science, as we know it, is a process that does have a very direct agenda. 
All right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's about that's, that's enough of this America grant. Can I segue special. into something quickly? Yeah, the sure. interview. No, <laughs> no, the interview. No, you just mentioned Dolan. Well, I wanted to mention, uh, I just found out that there's Disclosure Canada is coming to Calgary mm. on April 19th. No, April 19th is in Vancouver. April 18th is in Calgary. And it's an all-day event with uh, Richard Dolan, Grant Cameron, Paul Hellier, all who we've had on the show, and Stephen Bassett. So it'll be interesting. And then Victor... Right, no, Victor Vinci... Oh, no. Victor Vigiante will be putting it on. He's from Zealand. You think you could be able so. to, to to attend this event? Oh, yeah. I'll be there for sure. I'm, I'm awesome. going to go for a bit. Sure. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And there goes the new mixer. <laughs> that was the e-cigarette just fell behind the desk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Richard is also go, coming to Mexico next May in the oh, for uh, that? much discussed and controversial Roswell Slide event at the, in Mexico City. And I'm going to attend. It will be great if I'm be able to catch up with Roger, Richard. I'm not. I'm not sure if we will be able to do that. But if that happens, that will be really sweet. Yeah, yeah. So I'll link to that in the show notes, and uh, definitely for people that are uh, from Calgary or even Edmonton or wherever, like it's worth the trip down there. That's gonna be a great day. All four lectures and a little break. And well, fucking making fun of me. <laughs> So, yeah, and then so, we'll be there. So you can, we can maybe have a little meetup or something down there too. We'll meet with some, uh, wear your Primerica t-shirts. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm wearing yeah. mine right now. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough of, uh, Graham's ranting. Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck science. No, I love science, man. No. I love science. I just yeah, don't I... like the dogma and the institutionalization of it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, support the show. America.ca slash support. And then I don't think we we might as well jump into our chat with Scott Creighton, Scott Creighton, Egypt, and all that fun stuff. Uh, thanks for joining us, Red, and we'll yeah, see you in the outro. All right. <laughs>
He's got a new book coming out as well that's not out yet called The Great Pyramid Hoax, which we want to get into. So he's been one of these guys kind of alongside of like the Robert Bouval type and all that. He's been investigating the pyramids and some of the conspiracies around it. So uh, I guess we'll let Scott explain the rest of it. We're just happy to have you in here, Scott. Sorry about all the, the hassles and thanks for staying up late for us. So welcome to Gramerica. Hi guys, it's uh, it's it's great to be here. Pleased to pleased to um, be talking to you at last, and um, looking forward to a good show. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so we we should start, I guess, with uh, with the la- latest book that just came out. I guess the Secret Chamber of Osiris. But I don't want to forget to get into some of your other fascinating presentations. So especially the Gravity Cubit one, because we just did, you know, a podcast about the Giza Plateau and looking at all the sacred geometry and all the all the yeah. different principles that that plateau follows in the construction and the architecture. So I want to get into that too. Okay, yeah, that's great. Well, um, the the new book, um, the the secret chamber of Osiris, um, the lost knowledge of the sixteen pyramids. That's um, that's my most recent book, um, uh, which came out in December. Uh, Christmas Day there actually just passed and um, the the material on the gravity cubit, my goodness, I haven't um, discussed that in a long time. <laughs> that, that was in my previous book, um, the, the Giza Prophecy, which came out um, December 2014. So um, that's that's uh, that's going back a week. No, no, sorry, not 2014, 2012. I was going to yeah. say you're giving Nick Redford a run for his money. <laughs> yeah, December, December, no, in fact, December 2011, just tipping into 2012, was uh, the Giza prophecy. So yeah, that's that's, that's, a, that's a wee while ago now. But um, yeah, um, the the secret chamber of Osiris. That's that's my latest book. Basically, um, as you, you were saying earlier, a, a lot of the the work I do is um, um, building on the the work of um, some of the guys, the, the giants, if you like, that have um, been the trailblazers for this whole genre. That's the, the alternative, um, you know, um, history, alternative Egyptology mm-hmm. genre. The guys like um, uh, Baval, Hancock, um, the late, great Alan Alford, Philip Coppins, you know, these guys, you know, so I, I kind of um, uh, read a lot of their work um, and basically, um I've been building on it. I've been filling, you know, some of the gaps that that those guys um, have maybe overlooked, you know. So and came up with um, my own sort of um, view on things, which I have to say is is, is a little bit different um, from from what most people have been saying. What um, the structures at Giza mm-hmm. um, and in Egypt in general are all about. So, have you? Did, were you traveling down there uh, researching this type of stuff physically? Have yeah. You- yeah, well, I went. I went to um, um, Egypt um, in two thousand eight. With um, met up with Robert Baval and um, Graham Hancock there, um, and just my my key purpose for going at the time was I I'd come up with a theory. It's called. I, I don't know if you've read this in my book. It's called the centroid theory, and um, basically. Um, this this theory uh, uses the the gate the great pyramids at Giza the three main p- pyramids at Giza, and you use them with very simple um, geometry, very very basic geometry, and um, called centroid geometry. And using that type of geometry, it basically um, 
works to point those, to create a triangle around those three pyramids. It's a very unique triangle based on centroid geometry using the three centre points of those three pyramids. And they create this unique triangle which mm -hmm. points to um, a location to the southwest of the Giza pyramid field. And um, I basically went in 2008 to try and get to that location because I suspect... Uh, I, well, I suspected then, I still suspect um, that there may be something of significance, something of value, uh, something very, very ancient um, under the sands at that location. I explained in the book, The Secret Chamber, that's where I believe the secret chamber is located. And I explain in the book what the secret chamber is and how I um, came up with the whole concept. I mean, we hear ancient traditions talk um, of secret chambers, the secret chamber of Osiris, um, um, where the, the, the books of Osiris are locked away in an underground vault somewhere um, in Egypt. We hear about the Hall of Records. Um, you know, there's all these ancient traditions that have been passed down to us from the, the Egyptians themselves, ancient Egyptians, from the Romans, from the Greeks. Um, you know, we read in the, the, the Hermetica tradition of these secret chambers of lost knowledge um, buried somewhere um, in Egypt. And I came up with this there's one, there's one um, text which tells us that um, um, the secret chamber, the books of Osiris, will be found by three. Ah. Now, it doesn't say what the three is or the three are. It just says it will be found by the three. And I took that, you know, some people have interpreted this to mean, you know, three people will find this chamber at some point in the future, whereas what I suspect it means it's talking about the three giant pyramids of Giza point to this in some unique geometrical way, which I developed basically. Um, and uh, I found that, you know, the three great pyramids, using them together can create one unique triangle. Hmm. Uh, using the three most ancient centroids um, in, in mathematics, the three most ancient centroids in mathematics. You just basically place them around the three giant pyramids and there you go, it creates this triangle which points to this location. Now, the reason also I came up with the centroid theory was because I was trying to explain, I don't know if you're aware, guys, um, that the Great Pyramid doesn't, hasn't got four sides. Oh, it's, it's got six, right? Eight, eight Fuck. sides. <laughs> as, has, as has the smaller, yeah, very close. As has the smaller, the smallest pyramid that Giza, the, the, the G3, the pyramid of um, Encounter, that's the same. That's got um, these unique, um, they're called concavities, where the each, each um, pyramid face is slightly indented at the sides towards the center. Um on, huh. on yeah, but not in a not in a like purposeful kind of. It's like a perfect line down the middle, right? Yeah, it's perfect, perfect indent straight down the, the the middle. You see this indentation. You can only see it at certain time of the year. That's at the equinox. Oh, and this uh, is this is the Great Pyramid you're talking about. Yeah, 
Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever really seen that. Uh, that phenomenon. Yeah, clear enough. Yeah. Yeah, the only, the only time you can see it is at the equinox when the sun sun is rising at the equinox. Um, because of this indentation, the slight indentation, because the pyramid is perfectly aligned to the cardinal directions, when the sun is rising um, perfectly due east, it's hitting the, the pyramid perfectly side on, which means the the southwest face of this, you know, the south face of the pyramid is split into two. Because one side is face on to the sun and the other side is still in darkness, you know, you get this light and shade effect on the southern face um, um, of the of the pyramid. Well, I saw the southern face. I presume it happens in the northern face as well, side on um, as the as the sun's rising. You know, so you can see this phenomenon, and it's, it's because of, it's caused by these slight indentations. And Egyptologists cannot tell us why the heck they did this. You know, why, why make, they've made life immeasurably more difficult in building this structure by doing this. You know, so we still have no real idea why they did this. Some people think, well, it's, it's to mark the equinox. Bang. It certainly does do that because you can see the, the light and shadow and it's the only time of the year that you can see this as the sun is rising. Hmm. Uh, so, but then... You would only need to do that in one pyramid, the Great Pyramid. Why? Why would you know to mark the equinoxes? If you wanted to do that, you wanted people to know, right? This is the equinox. Look, there's the pyramid. It's it's in light and shade. The southern face is in light and shade. They wouldn't need the smaller of the three pyramids to do that as well. Hmm. You would really only need one pyramid to do that. So why did they do it with the smaller pyramid as well? Why is the smaller and why is the middle one not? Got these yeah. concretities, you know. So I was trying to find a way of explaining all this, and it turns out it's related, or at least I think it's related to centroid geometry. That's where I get the idea. Um, well, that's partly where I get the idea. Oh. the The main idea was actually my son. He came in and asked me one day. He was doing a maths project and he said, "Dad, how do you um, how do you find the centre of a triangle?" That was his question, and I went. Oh, good question. It depends. It depends on the type of triangle. <laughs> you know, a triangle, unless it's an equilateral triangle, doesn't have a perfect center, or it has a center of gravity. You know, but it doesn't, unless it's a you know, all three sides are equal. It doesn't have a perfect center. You know, so this is. So the, what did the, you find out? Because I don't. I, I'm just thinking. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My um, thought is, you draw a lot. Draw a line from the point through the center of the opposite side and you could maybe do it like if you kept doing that somehow you could if I had paper maybe I could figure it out yeah yeah well basically basically if, if you think of um, a triangle is that Darren yep that's Darren yeah Darren sick yeah, Darren, Darren. <laughs> sick Darren that's, that's not well um, <laughs> what basically if you, if you look at a triangle um, I mean obviously I don't want to go too deep into this because you know geometry thing just turns a lot of people off, you know. So I'll, I'll just say it very quickly and briefly. If you take any triangle, you can put a circle around the three outside corners of the triangle, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So you can join the three um corners, outside corners of the triangle with a circle. And then if you find the center of that circle, it marks a spot within the triangle. 
Yeah, that's called the, the that's a centroid. It's called the the circumcenter centroid. You can then take a so circle. on a real weird tri- triangle. The center could end up almost outside it. It could, yes, it could absolutely. Um, uh. De- de- depending on the, the nature of the of the triangle. So essentially what I did was I did the reverse. I took the three points of the pyramid, the three center points of the pyramid, and I worked out this triangle in reverse. Yeah? Okay. So, and basically creates a unique triangle which points to the southwest um, part of the, the Giza Plateau. And that is where I suspected um, this hall of record would be found by three the three pyramids, the three centroids. That, that that was my 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 gut instinct, and so and and I went there in two thousand eight to try and reach um, this location um, um, to the in the desert to the southwest of um, um, the, the the plateau, probably about you know two or three kilometers um, to the southwest of the plateau. Um, so. And I took with me a small capstone. It was more really a homage that I was doing. I wanted to go there to kind of pay my respects to the incredible builder of these structures, and which I believe, incidentally, for good reason, which I may come into later on, um, are much, much older than Egyptologists are telling us. They tell us these are four and a half thousand years old. No. What do you absolutely. think? Well, I, I think they're in the order of 19,000 years old. That would now, put them, that's almost like it probably lines up with Gobekli Tepe and shit, really. Well, yeah, Gobekli Tepe is about 12,000 years old, something like, something the order of that. Yeah, but, but I thought that was buried 12,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, it just seems to me that, you know, the more we keep digging, you know, the deeper we dig, the deeper we dive. We're finding that our history is going further and further. You know, the history of civilization. You know, I'm not talking about hunter gatherers. You know, I'm talking about civilization that has been pushed further and further back in time. There was an article. Um, I think it was uh, October um, 2013. New Scientist. You know, there's a, a brilliant article talking about the dawn of civilization, how science is having to push it further and further back in time. You know, so people like Graham Hancock, who basically has, has theory of a lost civilization, I think there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're finding fragments of this global civilization all over the world, but we're having to push, you know, the dates further and further back to make all the pieces fit. You know, so, but in the book, uh, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, um, I present um, evidence um, based loosely on um, Robert Baval's pioneering work about the Orion correlation theory, but taking that idea much, much further um, and much deeper than um, than, than Baval did. Um, I mean, great credit to Baval, you know, he, he took... Um, something he saw something and he ran with it and he brought the whole idea to an audience a worldwide audience that you know probably you know wouldn't have happened um, without Baval doing that you know so I've taken Baval's the the basics of Baval's idea but um, there's there's bits that Baval missed um, at Giza which 
um, you know, I I have missed. So basically, I show how Baval thought the the structures could be dated to ten thousand. Um, uh, 10,000 BC, 10,500 BC, something like that. Um, but I saw that actually he's missed a part of the, the jigsaw puzzle at Giza and the date is actually 19,000 or 17,000 BC, which is kind of... Um, kind of in the middle of the Ice Age, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, well... Um, Egypt would have been cool know, in the Ice Age, though. It probably would have been all green and shit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, back then, you know, we're talking about um, the Ice Age. That's the time the Ice Age um, came to an end. And we still don't know really for sure what was the precise trigger event for that end. Why did the ice sheets, the, the vast ice sheets that covered the North American continent and the European continent, what what was the trigger for I these think- Randall and Graham are coming up with a pretty good idea on that. Who? Uh, Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's 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 a, a number um, of um, you know possibilities, um, but the, the the point I'm making is that um, the ancient Egyptians themselves tell us um, that one of the, the the traditions or legends that have come down to us is that. Um, King Saurid of ancient Egypt, his astronomer priests went to him to explain, to tell him that the stars in the heavens had moved out of their place, had moved off their normal course. And the king, King Saurid asked, well, what does this mean? And the priests, the astronomer priests told Saurid, it means that in 300 years from now, there will be a great deluge which will destroy the entire kingdom, which will destroy everything um, in the land. Mm. And after that, it will be followed by a devastating drought. Now, Saurid then um, instructed um, the people that what they were going to do was to build pyramids. And in those pyramids, they would place everything inside them that they would need to rebuild their kingdom again after the worst effects of the drought, the deluge, sorry, the deluge had passed. And this is what, um, you know, they would build everything that was of esteem, place everything that was of esteem inside these these pyramids and um, in the hope that survivors could use the contents of those um, pyramids to reboot like the ancient Egyptian civilization, and it's remarkable to me that there's a couple of physicists, um, a guy called Bar- uh, um, Wolfley and Baltensperger, a couple of I think they're Norwegian physicists who came out with a paper a few years, I think it's 2007, which basically shows that you know we don't need a massive. Um, you know, Earth-size object to collide with the Earth for the Earth uh, to lose or its its axis to to change. We don't mm. need a massive that would d- extinguish everything on the planet if something like that happened. What what they were talking about was um, an object, fairly large ob- object passing close by the Earth, 
and that could cause enough tidal friction on the Earth's surface to cause the Earth's poles to rapidly migrate to um, another part of um, the planet. And, you know, they've done all sorts of calculations that, that, that bear this out. And what they are saying is that the pole, and about 19,000 years ago, the pole, the Earth's pole, was located roughly about 72 uh, 73 degrees north now. That's central Greenland now. That's where they say the pole was, and it migrated over a space of about 400 days to the Arctic Sea, where the pole is now. Now, that's a shift of about 17, 18 degrees. Um, and that caused these massive ice sheets to suddenly be pushed into warmer a warmer climate. There are you know, they're getting more solar radiation and causing them obviously to melt over a long period of time. And this this tilt that they say happened about 19,000 <laughs> years ago ties in with the story that the Egyptians are telling us that, you know, the stars moved out of the place and, you know, um, they expected that it could result in a great flood. And I have... In, the, the, the book I've shown how the structures at Giza date to 90,000 years ago to the, the, same, the same time, the same time frame, you know. So I think all this whole thing is all p part of the, you know, this, the same event, you know, that the ancient Egyptians were building these structures. I, I, I say in the book that they were building 16 pyramids. That was their, their plan was to build 16 pyramids. That was their project of cyrus so so they were basically a bunch of preppers back then yeah you could look at it like that <laughs> you know look look at it that way but um you know and and the sense that they actually physically according to the legends they actually saw something in the heavens that wasn't right you know, I don't know of any preppers today. I've seen anything <laughs> in the heavens that isn't right. Maybe some have. I don't know. But they 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 feel as if they actually saw something in the heavens that that disturbed them and felt that it was going to threaten threaten their kingdom. So they basically took steps. They could do nothing. They could do nothing and be absolutely certain that you know their kingdom would be lost forever, or they could elect to actually try and do something about it, and that's what they did. So you think that basically they uh, they saw this shift happen because the star, like basically the astronomy changed, really. And then they realized that that was going to cause something afterwards, like about 300 years after. I wonder, what do you think the chances are that it could have been a, because, you know, the running theme we have on the show is like, well, lately anyway, is the impact theory. Yeah. That do, you yeah. do you think it could be twisted around the, the mythology that they seen some shit coming from space and that it ended up impacting the ice sheet? Because that's a, that's 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 the coolest thing I've heard lately on it. Yeah, well, um, what the these two physicists are actually trying to do is that as they're not just explaining one event. They're actually, I mean, the, the ice ages and the Earth have only been happening for about, I think it's something like 3 million years. Well, why weren't we having ice, you know, ice ages before 3 million years ago? You know, so their hypothesis, the theory is that this object um, came into the Earth's solar system 3 million years ago. And that's what caused, you know, the, 
hundred thousand year ice ages that we, that we have every so often this object and then gradually the object was becoming closer and closer to the earth and then 20,000 years ago it got so close to the earth that it caused a shift and because it um, was so close it actually started to break up itself but it didn't break up instantly it broke up over thousands of years you know, it wasn't a one-time event. This is what these guys are saying. This wasn't. This happened over a long, long period of time. The initial um, you know, pole shift, they reckon, was about twenty thousand years ago. But the object broke up probably, probably in the Pleistocene, but going into the Holocene. Um, you know, you're talking about. Um, it may have been this object breaking up, which caused the. Um, you know, the Carolina Bays. You know, these. Um, um, I think there's something like half a million of them, these sort of impact craters in, in Carolina um, in the USA. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, and all sorts of, um, you know, um, you know, comets that, you know, like Phaeton and um, Wormwood, you know, that we hear in the Bible, you know, all these, these things are all part of the same object huh. breaking up over thousands of years and there was probably um, one of the last impacts was probably about uh, 2345 BC and the Australian astronomer George Dodwell, I don't know if you've heard of him, he has actually um, analysed ancient structures going back to the Temple of Karnak, you know, um, all the way back to you know, two and a half thousand BC, and he has actually shown that the Earth's axial tilt, which according to our modern science, can only tilt between the parameters of about 22 and a half to 24 and a bit degrees. It can't go any further than that. But this guy has shown through his analysis, scientific analysis, of these ancient structures going all the way back and all the way into to, to modern observations of the Earth's axis, you know, he's looked at the alignment of these structures, and he's basically worked out that the Earth's axis in the year 2345 BC was 26 and a half degrees. Now, according to our science, that's impossible. Hmm. According to our modern science, that is impossible. So this is a guy that's presented physical evidence that our pole our, the axis of the Earth was completely different from what our modern science predicts it should have been. So something was definitely going on, and something was going on to the planet for a very, very long time. I wonder if that fits in with like the Nibiru mist and stuff like that. If the, because it would seem like, do you think it's something on some sort of an orbit that comes around every once in a while, or is this a one-off that just kind of well, took this, a long time to play out? Well, this is this is what um, these these. Um, physicists um, uh, Wolfley and Baltensperger have been saying is that you know this orbit, this this object has been in you know the solar system for a long, long time. Um, they reckon that um, probably most of it has now um, broken up. Some of it crashed into the Earth, um, the Carolina Bays probably, and lots of other the Burkle crater, um, which c caused. Um, Massive um, devastation around about 10,000 um, year uh, BC, roughly around about in the Holocene, um, and um, you know it, it probably caused you know it was impacting the Earth, um, you know 
for, for, for several, several thousands of years. But most of it has probably gone now. But there could still be, you know, remnants of it out there in the solar system that every so often the Earth, the Earth passes through, you know, um, because the Earth and the Sun aren't stationary. And the universe, you know, <laughs> we're part of the arm of a massive galaxy, the spiral of a massive galaxy, which is swinging through, you know, space. You know, so this arm of our galaxy could eventually um, pass through, you know, um, whatever's out there again. But that's all speculation. The, the, the simple point I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make is that um, the dates tie up. You see, one of the other things that the Great Pyramid, uh, I speculate, um, in the book, um, you know these these shafts in the Great Pyramid. These they're called star shafts or air shafts. Or these um, they're only about eight inches square. These shafts and they go all the way through the body of um, the, the the pyramid. The the King's Chamber ones go all the way through from the King's Chamber to the outside face of the the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And there's there's two of them. One goes south. One goes north. Same with the Queen's Chamber. One goes north, one goes south, although these, these ones don't actually penetrate to the, the outside of the, the actual pyramid. Now, what I speculate these shafts are actually showing, which I explain in the book, is that they're actually, the Great Pyramid represents Al-Nitak of Orion's Belt. The three pyramids represent, at Giza represent Orion's Belt. The Great Pyramid represents Al-Nitak in Orion's Belt. Now, what these shafts are actually showing, pointed to, they're not pointing to different stars. They're pointing to the same star. The lower shaft is pointing wow. from the chamber, is pointing to Al-Nitak before it moved in the sky. It moved up six degrees, or there about six degrees. In the, and then the, the King's Chamber shaft is pointing to its new position. It's saying this is how much it moved. How much of that can the procession account for? Or I wonder if the procession could even be blamed on it. Well, procession, um, procession for 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 that would take something like sixteen hundred years. You know, for the star, you know, the pyramid was only built. They reckon about twenty years. Well, that's what that's what Egyptologists tell us anyway. But. Um, what I'm, I, I believe they're showing us is the former position of the star Alnitak on the southern horizon. It was at um, 33 degrees, sorry, 39 degrees, and it moved up to 45 degrees or thereabouts. Now, the northern, the northern shafts, they do the opposite. They go the opposite direction, and that's exactly what would happen if... The the if that if the south side of the sky moves up, the northern side of the sky moves down, and that's exactly what the shafts are showing us. Showing us. So the northern shafts are basically just mirroring the effect in the north to what is happening in the south. They're not. It's all about one star on the attack, and that's what the ancient Egyptians themselves tell us. You know um, about um, the Orion constellation. It's about one star, and that star, I believe, is um, Alnitak. I believe the shafts are pointing to um, that star's former position and its um, later position after the the pole shift. Now, this is only, as I said, this is only a shift of about six degrees. Yeah. Now, I've just, and that is what they are showing us. They are showing us 
the sky the skies moved six degrees, and that's what their legends tell us. The sky the stars moved out of their normal course. But hmm. wait a minute. I said earlier that the pole moved from central Greenland to the Arctic Sea, and that was a shift of about six degrees. Sorry, sorry, 18 degrees. Hmm. Now that actually ties in. Yeah, but that the, could yeah, that could all be relative to the way the it location. Shifted. Yeah, the the location of Giza and the way it shifted it actually matches. Because when you look at Giza, the difference between, if you measure the difference in degrees from Giza to central Greenland, uh. yeah, it's 54 degrees. Yeah. If you measure from uh, Giza to the Arctic Pole, it's 60 degrees. That's a difference. 60 minus 54 is your six degrees. So there's your shift. That's wow. exactly what, what those shafts are showing us. They're showing us that the stars did move exactly. But they those just, are the shafts they put those yeah. little robots down, right? That's, that's the ones, yeah. That's the ones, yeah. <laughs> I like that because that runs in right with that theme of like an Atlantean civilization that some fucking cataclysm wiped out and they knew it was coming and and prepared yeah. for it. And like I like prepared. I. I always like to say that we wouldn't even do that. We would be scrambling in the streets. We wouldn't even think bed, about building have... something for the people who survived this shit. We would be like, watch my <laughs> shit. We're already doing it. We've done it. We built um, the Spalbard Global Seed Vault up in the Arctic Circle. It opened in 2008 and contains just about every seed of every plant in the world. And they're now, they're now storing um, uh, tree seeds in, in the vault started doing that you know I, think I heard that actually you don't yeah. how come you don't hear about that more like you know so how much they, it cost to get something in that vault oh what no, if they got weed seeds <laughs> weed seeds what do you mean by weed <laughs> <laughs> no that was just a d <laughs> <laughs> i got a question about about the shafts staying on that topic for a bit mm -hmm. are the two lower shafts in the middle there they they don't go all the way to the outside and then, and then, what about the 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 really bottom shaft and how that goes out? Does it does that point to anything? Um, right. Okay. Well, you, there, there's the shafts and there's, there's passages. Uh, the, the the lowest one, the lowest. Uh, if you're looking at the pyramid um, schematic, um, uh, obviously, you know they don't look very big. They look just a little shaft, but there are yeah. actually passages there about three feet um, square. Um, <laughs> Whereas the actual shafts from the chambers, these are only about eight inches square, you know. So, you know, they're not for a person to 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 walk through or anything like that. I mean, Egyptologists they explain it away by saying, "Oh, that's for the the soul of the king," you know. His, his soul <laughs> would, would be blasted up to, and that would guide his his path. I said, "But wait a minute! If the king wants to go to that star over there, surely that's the star. Why does he need four shafts? He was getting blasted all over the place." <laughs> And there's you doors know, so, too, isn't there? Yeah, well, they call them doors, but there's they're they're actually um, just like plugs, limestone, limestone plugs. Yeah, they're just they're just limestone blocks. Keeps the water but, out. Yeah, you know, a couple a couple of inches thick. But you know, there's an interesting thing about um, what they discovered behind those those doors. Um, um, I think it was the Jedi, um, or the Jedi, um, or Jedi. Um, the Jedi Knight, when it got to um, drill through, or the first robot drilled through it, and um, Jedi um, put a, 
a camera, an optical camera, um, through the hole, and it found these um, markings in, in red ochre paint on the floor of the, the... It's a tiny chamber. I mean, the chamber, you know, is probably only about you know eight inches cube, something like that. It's not very big at all, this small chamber that the camera was peering into. And but they found these 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 red markings on the floor, and there's um, there's uh, an Egyptologist. I can't quite mind the guy's name, but he specialises in um, um, Egyptian mathematics, and he had a theory that um, these markings represented the number. I think it was 121. Yeah, huh. and, and written in some ancient Egyptian language. But the thing is. That's, that small cavity is actually, you know how the pyramid was built in layers, you know, block upon block upon block upon block, yeah? yeah? All the way to the top. It was built in layers, yeah? That small cavity with these markings, these mysterious markings, is at the same level as the Campbell's Chamber. Now, Campbell's Chamber is a chamber right at the very top above the King's Chamber. It's the one with the apex roof with a gable roof, and inside, it was discovered by Colonel Howard Weiss um, in 1837. He's the guy that found these markings, which I dispute. But anyway, could come to that later. Are those the cuckoo um, markings? Yeah. yeah anyway. I, I think everyone disputes those by this point. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I found the guy's original handwritten diary in a small um, library down in North London. Huh it tells a completely different story from his published book. Huh. Wow. But anyway, that's, that's another story. That, is so that what, your next book? Let's save that <laughs> for later. We should come back to that, I feel like. The, ne- the next book is called Great Pyramid Hoax. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, but what I was going, to, going on to say is about these, um, these the markings in Campbell's chamber, which Howard Weiss found. In there is the number 21. Yep. And 21 and 121, well, the, the 21 and 121 would be written the same as 21. Yeah. But that's complete... an extra one. Yeah, there'd be an extra one in the 121, but the 21 would be the same in, or should be the same in both. Yeah. But they're not. The 121 in this tiny cavity which we have to assume are original markings because no human hand has ever been in there since the time the pyramid was constructed. The 121 markings in that small cavity, they're genuine. But why is it written in a language that we don't even know what it says? We think it's, it might be some much earlier Egyptian language, but it's not written... Remember these 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 um, markings are written at the same time because they're they're being built at the same level. These two cavities are at the same level of the pyramid, but one is written twenty one, another is written twenty one, and they're com- written completely different language. Why? What's your theory? Because the 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 twenty one in the the, the Campbell's chamber, the, the markings that Howard Weiss found, are not genuine. Vandalism. <laughs> That's just one of the one of the 
tiny pieces of evidence that that I've that I've gathered um, um, about um, the markings in, in those chambers. Not just not just the Khufu marking, but the Kunum Kuf markings all the way through. There's there's six there's six cartouches in those chambers. Um, the Khufu ones in the very top, but there's there's Kunum Kuf, which is Khufu's full name. There's there's markings um, all over you know, the, the the chambers below, um, and I show how um, they are likely um, to be to be faked as well. But that's um, that's for another discussion. Oh, yeah. Another story yeah. for another day. <laughs> so we should get back to the the secret chamber of Osiris because I think like. Basically, we're, we're coming around to the point where this shit was made as a sanctuary or a repository or yep, yep. like an escape plan for some sort of cataclysm that was going to cause the sky to shit. Well, let's look at it from an Egyptian um, perspective, Graham, right? Look at what have they sent down to us? What traditions do we know of? Well, we have we have the the legend or the myth of Osiris. Yeah, Osiris was the ancient Egyptian god of rebirth and regeneration. He was also the ancient Egyptian god of seeds and grain. Yeah, uh-huh. and the myth that comes down to us is that his his body was cast into um, the Nile. That that symbolizes the flood that was coming. Um, they then his body was then found, and then his enemy, his brother Seth, then cut his body up into sixteen pieces and scattered these pieces of Osiris across the land of Egypt. Now, one of the so that's one legend that's come down to us. The other thing we have is the ancient Egyptian pyramid text. Now, these are these are texts, religious texts, are the oldest religious texts that we have anywhere in the world. And they were found in a couple of um, pyramids at um, Saqqara, the Pyramid of Teti, the Pyramid of Eunice. And in these texts, they say quite explicitly and quite clearly, the pyramid is Osiris. The construction oh. is Osiris. That's what it says, clear, as clear as that, as clear as a bell. The pyramid is Osiris. So I got to think, well, wait a minute, Osiris' body, upon, according to the legend, was cut into 16 pieces and scattered across the land of Egypt. So if the pyramid text tells the pyramid is Osiris, could these six, first 16 pyramids be Osiris? Hmm. Or metaphorically, you know, like you know, the Christian church today, metaphorically scattered all over the world, but it's metaphorically the body of Christ, okay? Similar idea. So what I did then was... I got my good friend Google Earth <laughs> and I mapped onto Google Earth the first 16 pyramids that the ancient Egyptians built. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the um, guys, I don't know if you've ever seen the classic figurine or, of Osiris. He's standing there um, with his arms crossed with the royal regalia of mm-hmm. power, crook and flail held in his hand. He's got the, the three-pronged atif crown on his head. The centre prong is slightly taller than the two at the side. And then, you know, his legs go straight down, you know. And um, he's obviously bound in white white linen. You know, so that's a classic Osiris image that has come down to us. And you see it in all um, the, the ancient Egyptian paintings of Osiris. Now, what I did when I plotted those 16 
<laughs> pyramids onto my my friend Google Earth. I wasn't expecting really to find anything. But guess what I found? It's I found it somehow matches that. Yeah, I found an outline of the classic Osiris figure with wow. the three-pronged headed crown, the middle part slightly taller, the crook and flail crossed over the arms and the legs going straight down. It's almost like a, a constellation. Well, yeah, you know, it's what, what I'm, I'm basically saying is that, you know, the, the pyramid Osiris, Project Osiris, Osiris was all about a project um, to give rebirth to the kingdom, not rebirth to the king. Hmm. The original concept. Project Osiris, give, I like that. That'd be like what it would be called today. Yeah. 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 Project Osiris. Let's build. And the plan was to build these 16 pyramids. Now, I'm not saying that the, the, the built the shape. I think the shape, someone probably when they were plotting these um, on, on a, a, a drawing, well, look, you can make a shape of a person by doing this. You know, I'm not saying they actually planned the shape of Osiris. I think this, the classic shape of Osiris came out of this, where oh, they yeah. were located. You know, because obviously, the, you know, they would have to, the, the, the requirements of the locations of the pyramid would be determined by, like, being near to quarries and things like that, you know, so it would be, Truly remarkable indeed if you could, you know, draw a picture of Osiris, you know, where all the quarries were naturally located. So I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the the someone saw, you know, like we look up in the skies. It was just that's where they built them. But somebody looked at it one day and said, "Oh, look, see if you join this dot here to here, you can make." The shape of a person like we do we look at a bunch of um, stars in the sky and we can draw lines between them and make all sorts of you know shapes of animals and, and all sorts of things you know something i'm saying that's what happened but i'm not saying that you know that's what the plan but that is how osiris was born if you like mm. um and that is what their their, their project osiris um was and the thing is you know, um, you see, Egyptologists—they tell us, they tell us, you know, no, these are tombs, these are tombs for kings. If you take Project Osiris, you know, the, you take all the the giant pyramids in Project Osiris. I think there's eleven giant pyramids. You know, they've only found what Egyptologists would call sarcophagi, granite box, and I think four of them. Hmm. Yeah, but here's the here's 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 the crunch in the granite box. I don't call them sarcophagi. I call them nebank. Neb means container and ank is the ancient Egyptian word for life. Nebank, container of life. In the stone box of G2 in um, 1818, Giovanni Belzoni was the first um, modern explorer um, to find, or the first modern explorer that we know of, to get into the, the, the chamber within that pyramid. And he opened the granite box and he found, guess what? Seed. Very close. He found it filled with earth. He found Oh, the so box. you would plant the seeds in the box. Yeah. It's, and then when the sun a, come in the shafts? No, 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 there's oh. no shafts in, in G2. But no, what I'm saying, it's a Teutonic ritual. 
It's a Teutonic ceremonial box. It's about the rebirth, symbolising the rebirth of the earth. Not the king, the earth. That's why there's earth in the box. You know, take what the ancient Egyptians did in later dynasties, um, you know, the 11th, 12th dynasty. What were they doing? Well, they were making small stone boxes about 12, 24 inches, 18 inches long, something like that, sometimes made of stone, sometimes made of wood, um, and they were filling them with earth. And they were placing seed in the earth. Belzoni doesn't tell us anything about seed because he doesn't, he obviously wasn't looking for seed, but there probably was seed in the earth because what he did find in the earth in this box in G2 was some bone, bones of a bull, and the bull is associated with grain because the, 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 the bull, and is also associated with Osiris, the, the bull would trample the grain into the earth. That's, that's why, that's the connection between the bull. And the bull was a symbol of the fecundity, you know, the fertility of the earth. You know, so this was a Chthonic ritual. And the ancient Egyptians in later dynasties were making stone boxes filled with earth, sprinkled with grain, put a lid on them, buried them in the ground and put a big boulder on top of them, symbolising the pyramid. This tells you that the ancient Egyptians in later dynasties knew what was in these pyramids and knew what the stone boxes in these pyramids were for. They weren't for the body of a king. It was a Teutonic ritual about the rebirth of the kingdom, not the rebirth of the king. That would come later. That almost seems to me like the pyramids were more the birthplace of Egypt than a product of Egypt as we see it. Darren, that's exactly what the ancient Egyptian creation myth tells us. The the ancient Egyptian creation myth tells us that, you know, the the earth came up out of the floodwaters. They call it the primeval mound, which is the pyramid, came up out of the floodwaters and the door of the pyramid opened and everything in creation came out of the pyramid Everything came out of the pyramid to replenish or to give birth to the land of Egypt. That's what the ancient Egyptian creation myth tells us. And I think it's absolutely true because I think that's probably is what happened. Um, One of the other things that the ancient Egyptians do, as well as making these small um, boxes like mini sarcophagi, what Egyptologists would call sarcophagi, which I call nebank, is they would make mud dolls of Osiris. Again, these would be about 18, 20 inches tall. And these would be hollowed out. And in the hollow, they would fill this mud with grain. And then they would close it. And then they would bind it in uh, linen, uh, what a mummy wrapping. These are, these are called corn mummies. So here you have Osiris, the body of Osiris, a miniature effigy of Osiris filled with grain. Just exactly as the pyramids were the body of Osiris filled with grain. And other stuff as well, tools and whatnot. The first pyramid at Saqqara, take the first pyramid at Saqqara, the giant, this is the first pyramid they built. Underneath that pyramid, there are literally kilometers of passageways. Yeah, kilometers of passageways underneath that pyramid. And... The first explorers in the early 20th century went down there 
started walking through these passageways. And what they found, they were walking through corridors and corridors up to their shins, up to their knees in grain. Huh. Not only that, but they found um, somewhere in the order of 40,000 storage vessels under that, that pyramid. You know, so this is what I'm saying. You know, the whole idea that these structures were used as tombs, you know, the ancient texts tell us that, yeah, they were first and foremost, the first pyramids, the giant pyramids, were conceived as a recovery system, not of the king, but of the kingdom. The idea of a rebirth pyramid for the king would have evolved later. These smaller Khufu was just the first one to do that. He's like, I'm getting buried in this bitch. And then everyone else started building pyramids too to get buried in. Yeah, these are intrusive burials. These are intrusive burials. You know, the whole idea of the pyramid, they... The later dynasties knew that all oh, these giant things, these these were these these are the things that you know were all about creation. These these created our land. These are these are rebirth machines. These are rebirth engines. You know, so the kings, well, I want a piece of that action. You know, so he gets himself put put in there either intrusively or builds a much smaller pyramid for himself. You see, this is the thing. If you look at the the first pyramids, the giant pyramids. These, you know, their construction work is infinitely superior to the the work of the later dynasties of the fifth, sixth, you know, um, twelfth dynasties. You know, the 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 construction work of the later pyramids are much smaller, much cruder than the giant pyramids. The giant pyramids were built for a completely different purpose. Two completely different phases, two completely different sets of builders for different functions. The functions of the first giant pyramids was Project Osiris, about saving the kingdom, about giving the kingdom rebirth. The later ones, well, maybe they, they, they built them in homage, or maybe they actually did build them, build them to use as pyramids for their for them for their burial, which would be pretty daft because you know then everybody sees where the king's body is. And in ancient Egyptian religion. The king, the king's body is desecrated in any way at all. That means he dies forever. And you know what king is going to want someone to find his tomb in order to desecrate it, in order to kill him forever? Hmm. A king, an ancient Egyptian king's not going to want that to happen. So why is he going to tell someone where his tomb is? <laughs> so at this point, we can almost call the kingdom Atlantis. Um. By like well, our modern, like if you look at Atlantis as being in a, more of a civilization than a place, I guess in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I'm I, I'm sure I've read I read some some theories um, a long time ago now that um, equated um, you know parts of Egypt um, with Atlantis. Now, I'm sure there are some texts. I think it's in the the, the Temple of Karnak where um, it, it, you know talks about. You know, the, the kingdom is somewhere in the order of 40,000 years old, um, you know, and the, the, the previous kingdom was destroyed in a massive flood, you know. So all this stuff is there. You know, we, we just have to join the dots. And, you know, the, you know what I've done here with the, the, the 16 pyramids is basically say, look, these are completely different from all the ones that came later. Look what we found. Look at the evidence we found in them. We found grain. 
Tons of it. And, and there's also secondary evidence, incidentally, that there was massive amounts of grain stored in the Great Pyramid. I explain this, um, this in the book. You know, so these were vast repositories. You know, so that's like uh, common, common, commonly accepted. They found a bunch of grain in that shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's all in all three of them? And no, no. Well, well, the, the whole idea, um, Darren. The whole idea is that, um, Darren. I'm glad you've got a cold because I can I can tell it's you speaking. You've got a cold. <laughs> um, um, no, what the um, the the whole idea obviously is that they can um, take um, the the recovery items out of these pyramids. That was the whole idea. So. You know, um, we're not actually expected to find anything. The reason we found material still in the step pyramid was because um, apparently some galleries there, the wall had collapsed, and you couldn't actually get into them. All the oh, other galleries so was just left over. It was left over, but all the other galleries were empty. You know, so um, the whole idea, obviously, is that you know they would take the material out of the pyramids because. See when you think of it, look at look at the engineering of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. When you look at that closely in detail and you know, with the, the mindset that this is to be the tomb of a king, his body is precious, if his body is desecrated in any way, he dies a second death, that's his death forever. You know, there's no second chance, which would impact the kingdom as well, incidentally, because the king could no longer commune with the gods, which means he could no longer, you know, the kingdom could no longer, you know, get the uh, benevolence of the gods. So, um, you know, they had to, you know, protect the king, his body at all costs. You know, this massive tomb that can be seen from 40, 50 miles away, I ain't going to crack it, you know. Just yeah, it seems opposite to what it should be. It should but, be hidden somewhere, like you said. Yeah, but if you want, you know, a recovery vault, yeah, yeah. you want that to be seen from fifty miles away. Yeah, yeah. It seems like if if you're right, and and let's say this was, it really seems like they were a civilization trying really hard to, like, it just seems so opposite from where we're at right now. We're so stuck in you know what we're doing right now we can't even think of far enough ahead past you know a four-year election or whatever and these guys well, were yeah. actually like um not sympathetic what's the other word i'm thinking of like empathetic past to empathetic. empathetic to like their future and they know that in the past fucked up shit has happened and we have to prepare for the future so and i mean who knows maybe they believed in reincarnation so they were going to be coming back anyways so they might as well you know, work on shit now so that when they come back, you know, reincarnated, they're not going to be in some hellhole. That's interesting. So I wonder if they believed in, in the, uh, or the sacred geometry of a pyramid shape would help to restore or preserve these, uh, the goodies that they leave behind. I think it's just cause it's stronger. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, the, the, the pyramid, um, shape, um, I mean that, shape is actually you know, deeply connected to the whole concept of rebirth, of regeneration, um, and that the uh, pyramid shape is uh, connected. It's called the, the 
or the capstone of the pyramid is, is called the Ben-Ben stone, which gets its name from the ancient Egyptian Bennu bird. And the Bennu bird has um, similar properties to that of the, the Sphinx, whereby it can regenerate itself out of the ashes of its own destruction. So that's a whole sort of um, mythology, mythological sort of concept behind the or that, that's came down to is about the, the shape of the pyramid. Um, but, I mean, fundamentally, from a, a construction engineering perspective, um, a pyramid is um, the, the best, um, you know, in ancient times without steel, it's the most stable structure, you know, something that's wider at the bottom and narrower at the top. You know, if you pour sand, a bucket of sand onto the ground, you know, it naturally forms a, a pyramid or a cone shape, you know, so because that's the natural nature, natural or nature's <laughs> sort of natural, um, you know, stable structure is, mm. is a pyramid. You know, but they, I mean, they're, they're going to want it to be um, as big as possible, as strong as possible. They're going to want it to be water waterproof. They're going to want to regulate the temperature inside it. You know, that's why it was lined with, with these white casing stones, these marble white casing stones, um, um, from the Tura quarry, quarries at Tura, um, they um, basically would reflect the sun. They would keep the temperature inside the the, the structures, you know, stable and consistent. Because the one thing you don't Ooh, want, I like that. The, the the one thing you don't want with with a massive storage of grain is the grain germinating. So you can't have fluctuation in the temperature. Temperature can be warm and temperature can be cool. You just don't want it varying changing very much because that's what causes the germination so you have to keep the temperature consistent so that's that's and and of course these these blocks were you know these they were placed together with a cement that is so strong and you know impervious you know uh, we still don't really know um how they made it you know or, or what it was but it was watertight you know so and it was incredibly strong, you know. So this this is what you have. But the point I was saying was that you know the the, the internal. If this was a tomb, you know, why leave the chamber? The, what's called the descending passage. That the small sort of swivel door at the face of the pyramid, and I mean all the way down to the subterranean chamber, which is about three hundred feet below the pyramid, but the, mm. the passageway is about three hundred feet long. You know, so that, it goes all the way down to the the subterranean chamber, but it passes a junction of what's called the ascending passage, which takes into the grand gallery and then on into the antechamber, into king's chamber, and obviously the, the the queen's chamber. But why, you know, why has anyone get you know allowed any access to the descending passage in the first place? Surely, if you're an ancient Egyptian king, the last thing you want is, is anyone remotely near it <laughs> wandering around inside it. You just don't want that. What you would have done is made sure that passageway was plugged with cement, with rock, all the way to the door. You would not have left that passageway open at all. Well, the funny were... thing is, like, even from a modern-day building perspective, I, I build things. And even like today, if you wanted to build some shit that was strong, even with steel or concrete or whatever you used, I mean, the strongest would be like a sphere, like a half a sphere would be stronger, yeah. would be the only thing stronger than 
a pyramid shape. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. So how, how do they do this then when they've got those shafts that, like you say, they're pointing to specific stars and they're built and you have to build around, like how can you even imagine them building this pyramid with, like, what, what, like, what do you think of the mainstream even view know of could, how this happened? I don't even know if we could pull it off today. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, we, we, we could probably, I mean, we could probably do it um, engineering-wise. We could probably do it. It's, it's whether <laughs> we, we could actually find the money, the political will to do it. You know, that, you know, that's just a whole different ballgame. But I think, you know, technically, yeah, we could do it. Whether, It'd be you know, tough. It would yeah, be I mean, tough. It, I mean, to line up all those shafts and everything, like I'm looking at right now in the middle of Billion Airport. And I'm looking at the fucking trouble these guys are having putting this thing together. <laughs> and I can't, I just can't fucking imagine without any sort of modern machinery. I just can't see how it's, I think if you, if you did it today, I think it would take 10 years. I at think, least with today's yeah. technology and 2000 or 5,000 men, it would take you 10 years minimum. Yeah. I think it probably, it probably be longer, but there's another thing about the, the, you know, engineering in there. Why, if this is a tomb, yeah? Remember, we keep telling this, get, getting told by Egyptologists, this is a tomb of, of the king. Why? I don't know if you're aware of the antechamber, which is just before the king's chamber. The antechamber is a small chamber just in front of the opening of the, the king's chamber. And apparently it had these three blocks which slid down these grooves and blocked the entrance to the king's chamber, three huh. granite slabs, yeah, and slid down these grooves, bump, 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 and that was the the chamber sealed. Uh, they basically pull these these chalks or these blocks from under the the slabs. That would be them sealed. The thing is, there's a fourth block in the chamber. That incidentally, the 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 three slabs that are supposedly they are no longer there. But there's one slab that is still there. It's called the granite leaf. But this is a completely different thing. The grooves don't go all the way down to the ground. They stop about three feet high from the ground. This granite leaf. It, it's basically like a a, a a granite slab, a block. You know, maybe about three or four inches thick in these grooves but the grooves don't go all the way down to the bottom a bit like it can move up and down like a guillotine yeah now why would they leave that there because you could actually use the granite leaf as a counterweight to lift the granite slabs that Mm. were already there why would you it's a bit like you know you lock in all your your house you know lock it and you're leaving the the key in the door (laughs) You know, if this is a king's tomb, why are you leaving a device there that can be used as a counterweight to lift the, the granite s- slabs that are blocking the entrance to that chamber, to that yeah. vault? You wouldn't do it. Yeah, it unless, make sense. Unless you actually wanted people to use it to lift these slabs to get into that vault. And then the junction where the... Descending passage meets the ascending passage. That's where, you know, it's just incredible because the the ascending passage has these granite blocks which block it. Now, I've looked into this, and to me, those granite blocks were built in situ. You know, the plugs that 
block the end of the, the ascending passage. That supposedly they were slid down, you know, the passageway having been stored in the Grand Gallery. And then, you know, the the guys that slid them down make good their escape out of the, the well shaft or some, something like that anyway. But to me, I've looked into this and I just cannot accept that, you know, they could risk, you know, just shoving these um, granite blocks, these tapered blocks down this 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 shaft and hope it would work first time. They had to get it right first time because if they stuck or yeah. jam or something, <laughs> you know that's that that's it. No, to me it looks like these granite plugs were actually built in situ. Huh. They're actually built in situ because yeah, you wanted people to break in afterwards. You wanted access um, at the time of. Um, to get in and out of the pyramid, but you wanted to seal it as well, you know, early on. So that's what they did. These were actually built in situ, and that actually filled the the chambers from the top. You know, the lower the the the, the sarcophagus, for example, the sarcophagus, not the sarcophagus, the nebank, the granite box, it's too wide to go through the door of the king's chamber. So it was obviously lowered from the ceiling. Yeah. Hmm. As would everything else that was stored, the grain or seeds, tools, whatever was stored in these chambers would be stored, um, you know, it would be entered from above. It, that's why they could block it in situ because, but you can't do that for a tomb. I wonder if they dumped it all down those shafts. That's what I was thinking. Dumped that was all. like the loading chute. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Huh. Yeah. Like a storage, like that's where all this shit gets stored. Like well, those little eight-inch shafts that go to the chambers, that's where they dumped all the grain in and then they plugged it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I believe that the, the Grand Gallery, um, which is an extension of those shafts, that was a, um, a, a storage, the, probably the main storage vault um, of the, the entire system. You know, so, um, you know, that's, that's, um, that's the theory. Obviously, in the myth of Osiris, we're told that there's one part of Osiris's body that his wife Isis, Isis went around trying to find all the parts of the body and there's a part that she couldn't find. And I think that's an allegory or a metaphor for saying there's a part hidden somewhere. Huh. Well, I was and looking at the, top, the overhead of the Giza Plateau and it seems like that'd be... If you drew a circle around that, the center would be outside it. I wonder maybe there's something in the middle of that circle. Well, this is what I, I came up with, with the found by the three and the triangle that I, I, I was talking about earlier that you can draw around the three pyramids uh, using the three most ancient centroids. It points to this location to the southwest of the plateau, which I tried to get to um, and which I uh, struggled really hard. Now, I have stood... Between the paws of the Sphinx, I've read the the Dream Stella, which stands between the paws of the Sphinx. And there's some badge-carrying Egyptologists who can't even get access to um, the Sphinx, you know. So I was able to do that. But this little piece of desert, this, this you know, plain, untouched piece of desert was blocked off. It was fenced off. Huh. I, tried, I tried getting to it from the north. I tried, it was blocked off by a thing called Zahi's Wall. 
at Zahi. <laughs> built this wall. And it was only about 200, 200 yards or maybe less than that um, you know, where I was confronted by this wall. So I decided to, to attack it from the south. And again, same thing, fences, you know, um, security towers, all sorts of stuff. How, how big of an area are you thinking? Like, how big? Oh, well, I walked, I walked for about uh, four or five kilometers. I was just, I couldn't get in. I just couldn't get in. That's got to be the entrance to something. You know, so anyway, I wrote, to Zahi, yeah, I, I wrote to Zahi Hawass about it afterwards, and I, I explained um, the theory, and I, I asked him wow. why. Why is this wall there? And he said it's to protect this bland sort of um, sort of stock Excuse? answer. It seems yeah. like yeah, it's a stock answer to protect the guests of Egypt, whatever that means. Anyway, so I um, uh, I, I explained to him the theory, and that was in, I think in um, December two thousand and eight, and then I think February March two thousand and nine. Guess what happened? They it started, got a lot of attention. They started excavating. You can go onto Google Earth. You know how Google Earth has got this time lapse? You can go back in time to see a specific um, part of the Earth, you know, um, years ago. And then it shows you time lapse. You can see the development of that that piece of land. Well, in in December um, two thousand eight, it was just desert. The location I'd identified was just desert. Um, and then I think it was Mar- February, March, um, round about then um, two thousand and nine. Um, there was all sorts of dumper trucks, um, you know, diggers, you know, all sorts of stuff, you know. Moving away the sand, excavating the whole area, and to this day, um, I've, I've I've written to Zahi about it, and um, he hasn't replied, unfortunately. But to this day, you can go in and see that they've um, covered it over with something. I'm not sure what it is. It looks like concrete or something. I'm not sure, but the whole area it was just desert before. It's now all covered over with with, with concrete, and um, before the before they got the, the, the cover over it, um, a chap I know, um, Dennis, managed to do some gamma-filtered photographs of oh. the area. And he actually found a geometrical shape under the sands. Ugh. So, hey, guys, um, you can go and look at it for yourselves. You know, um, I'm not making this stuff up. You can go and look at it for yourselves. Um, what's there? I don't know. I wish that was the very spot that I was going to place my little, I took a little capstone piece of granite from Scotland when I went in 2008. I was hoping to place it there at the, the apex of this the- theoretical triangle, which I had drawn around the, the, the Giza pyramids at this location. I was hoping to bury it there, say a few words from the hymn, to Osiris, just as a homage, but I never quite um, made it there. But certainly, it looks to me like it's a place of interest right now in in Egypt. Wow! Um, but well, was it hard for you to decide to whether to include Zahia on your theory at all? Well, they, at that time, I mean, if you wanted anything to happen, you had to Egypt, go through them, right? You had to go through them. I mean, that's that's the 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 
you know, the proper channel, uh, that's yeah, the, the yeah. to put it. You know. So there, there wasn't really anything else um, <clears throat> really you could do. Maybe you didn't bring enough hookers with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got uh, one. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, so they had a wall built around it already, and uh, basically stalling or waiting for something. And now the heat—you've turned up the heat, and they're like, "Okay, we got to get this shit out of here before they start." <laughs> well, I, they start doing gamma filtered photos from above. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, you know. <sighs> Is it coincidence? It seems a hell of a coincidence to me that, you know, just months after me informing Zahi of this this theory, um, and obviously it must have made sense to somebody because there you go, the whole site has been totally excavated. But as I said, not before we managed to get some gamma filtered photographs which showed there's some geometrical form um, at that, that location, you know. Stargate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we start wrapping up here, Scott, do you want to talk? Is there anything else you want to, to mention to us? Um. Well. Um. Oh, I mean, I could sit here and talk all night, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I could. Um. But no, just just I think there's obviously um. You know, uh, there's there's a lot more uh, material to come. There's a, an awful lot of material. Um, in the book, um, it talks about how the structures. I believe the structures were built, mm. um, and that, that's that's in the book. And there's good evidence um, to support um, my my theory that the builders used a a form of um, ancient ancient balloon, hot air balloon, because there's these um, d- oh, these. Wow giant pits right beside um, the pyramids. They're not just ordinary pits, they're about uh, 15, 20 feet deep, um, but they're, they're, they're side by side and they're connected by a, a horizontal channel at the bottom, like a U-shape. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, I believe these were like um, a, De- a massive Dakota fire pit. I don't know if you're familiar with a Dakota fire pit. Basically, you start a fire in one of the, the pits and the other pit is used as uh, as oxygen to to, and what what that does is it creates a really really fierce fire. It burns very very efficiently, really really hot, a lot hotter than a conventional fire, and it produces virtually no smoke. You know, so I'm saying that would be ideal. Huh. You know, to use for for a hot air balloon. And then I present some evidence in the book where you can actually what looks like hot a hot air balloon being filled with air and then uh, you know from ancient egyptian carving carvings and then the hot air balloon actually vertical flying with what looks like stones being carried below it you know so um there's evidence in the book um about about that um and explain how how it would have worked, you know. So, as I said, I could sit here and, and talk <laughs> talk all night. But it, obviously, there's there's some stuff in the book about the the vice forgery um, as well. Um, there's um, there's a, a, a fair fair bit there, which from his um, his handwritten field journal, which I managed to track down to a, a small library in North London last year, which basically, as I said earlier in the show. It, it gives a, a a different account to what is actually published um, in Vice's um, uh, operations at Giza, his his two book volume that that he published. It gives a 
slightly different, well, not slightly different, but a significantly different um, <laughs> account um, to, to what actually happened. So, um, you know, but as I said, there's some of that in the book, but I've got a lot more evidence since then about the whole vice um, thing that um, will be going into my book I'm working on right now. Which the, the Great Pyramid Hoax. The Great Pyramid Hoax, which I'm what, glad and, to see Inner Traditions has accepted for publication. Oh, that's so, good. Wow. <laughs> when is that coming out then? Uh, that'll be um, December, um, probably December 2016. Oh, okay, so we've got a while to wait for that still, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, hopefully you can make Grand America your first stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, you guys will be in my my Skype list, and you're in my email now, so don't you, worry. <laughs> don't you worry. So do, do you think, one last question here, do you think it's it's opening up at all, like the mainstream paradigm is starting to crack? Well, you know, I've been speaking um, to... Um, an Egyptology friend of mine, um, I can't give their name or their, their detail because, you know, they've, they've got a job to do and they need to make a living. Right. You know? yeah. And uh, if, if um, they see who they are, you know, they, they basically just get their, their grants cut, they, they, they get blocked for, um, you know, permits and all sorts of stuff. Just, you know, their, their persona non grata, speak out of line. Um, well, they, they were saying to me that the, the, the Khufu cartouche, the, the markings in these pyramids, they said, we know they're fake, but we just can't say. Wow. So to me, to me, it sounds like, you know, the, the old guard is still there and they're probably going to be there for something yet. but. This Egyptologist said to me, younger Egyptologist, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future if this is what, you know, this, this person has said to me, you know, uh, there's more um, forward thinking Egyptologists now than there probably ever were. So I'm kind of hopeful that it is opening up a bit, but I think it probably won't happen in my lifetime, but um Hopefully, um, in the not too distant future, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start to really get um, the answers because, you know, the answers are in these books. You know, I just have so many questions about them. It just doesn't jive for me at all. Mm. You know, just too many questions, too many things that just, just do not fit and are contradictory. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, and hopefully as things are discovered around the rest of the world as well, that puts it, that kind of puts additional pressure, I think on, on the Egypt well, story, you know? Well, this is it, you know, that we're, as, as I said at the, at the top of the show, Graham, you know, um, you know, we're digging deeper, we're diving deeper mm -hmm. and we're finding stuff you know, and you know, long may it continue because it's pushing the barriers of civilization, the boundary of civilization, further and further and further back in time. And you know, I'm you know fairly um, convinced that um, these structures at Giza, well, the first sixteen pyramids were Project Osiris. It was all to do with a shift in the Earth's axis. They believed the catastrophe was coming, and this all happened 19,000 years ago when the Ice Age went into meltdown. Hmm. It's all part of the same event. That's fascinating. It's, it's an interesting time here where, where all this stuff's happening. I pre appreciate your, you know, your work with all this stuff and you and this whole 
crew of alternate history researchers, and it's it is truly fascinating. Long may it continue. <laughs> yeah. Where is there any place else our, our listeners can track you down, or you're on the YouTube or the Facebook? Um, well, I um, I I don't actually do Twitter. Um, um, social media. Um, I, I'll go. I have a website that's www.scottcrichton.co.uk. There's lots of photographs there. There's lots of presentations. There's lots of essays that people can download. I'll be putting a few more up in the next um, couple of weeks or so. Um, but there's there's stuff there people can go and look at. Um, they can get details of my my books there as well. But uh, no, I don't do social media. I've got I've got an objection to Facebook. Um, you know, you, you post photographs of your stuff on Facebook they can just grab it and use it which which I disagree with so I don't do um, I don't do um, that for copyright reasons <laughs> right on makes sense yeah yeah <laughs> well we want to thank you for coming on and we'll link to all that in the show notes uh, yeah. all your websites and all that kind of stuff and uh, yeah keep up the good work and, and keep in touch for when your when your next book comes out yeah it's been a blast guys I've thoroughly enjoyed myself great Thanks a lot, Scott. Now you can get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, I finished the coffee. I think I'll go and have another one. Or maybe not. <laughs> Thanks Cheers, a lot, guys. Scott. Thank yeah, yeah. Okay. see you next time. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And welcome back to the Grand America Show. That was our chat with Scott Crichton and his book about his book, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, The Lost Knowledge of the Sixteen Pyramids. Back to Egypt, eh, Darren? What'd you think? I was good. I was ready to go back to Egypt. Were you? Yeah. Scott You're not was, sick of it yet? No. Well, we hadn't gone there in a while. It was kind of a different. It yeah, was different. It, yeah, it was good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I learned some Early. stuff. So we want to thank go to that Scott spot. for coming on. Yeah. What spot? Outside the center of the circle of the triangle of the pyramid. Oh, the spot that's now fenced in and you can't get there anymore? Yeah, that spot. Yeah, that spot. I know, it's interesting, eh? That's the spot. So many conspiracies. Conspiracies? Well, yeah, I mean, it makes it sound so much better when you find the spot and then all of a sudden, you know, the access is taken away and you wonder what's down there, right? You know, you wonder what's being suppressed in Egypt that hasn't been found yet. Stargate. Stargate. <laughs> There's our uh, RPJ, of course, is with us just because we're doing a bunch of recording and testing out gear. So yeah. we get RPJ in the outro too. Yeah. So we want to thank Scott for coming on and, and wish him all the luck in the future and uh, interesting stuff there. And uh, Red, Red Pill Junkie, you want to talk about something here before we. Uh, Shut her down. About um, our friend Christopher O'Brien, um, Graham and, and myself met him in person in 2013 on the Paradigm Symposium. And um, 
last week, you know, uh, Tuesday or last week, we learned that his uh, brother Brandon sadly uh, passed away due to cancer. So we wanted, I wanted, and I'm sure that all of us want to extend our condolences to him because, you know, uh, it's obviously it's obviously one of the hardest things that could happen to a person, you know, lost lost of a sibling, and well, you know, all all our love and our uh, and our thoughts are, are are going to him right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Were they were they close, to, uh, <clears throat> Chris and, and Brandon? Yeah, it seems so. You know, uh, there there is some something of a, an uh, an obituary that. Chris left at the Paradise, uh, the Paracast forum, mentioning some something about uh, about his brother. You know how he was so bright that he quickly became uh, 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 climbed up on the levels of the Ma- Masonic order, and also that how he uh, they became partners in these uh, uh, trips to the Mayan lands. And, well, it seems that, they, yeah, indeed, they were pretty close and that, uh, Jesus, I don't know what else to say. You know how, well, uh, Sorry, I don't know what else to say. I'm at, no. I'm at a loss. No, no, no. It's it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, Chris is a real uh, good guy, a real interesting guy. So we're sorry to hear about your your brother passing away. Yeah, I'll link to the Paracast too in case people haven't heard it before. It's uh, an interesting podcast. Yeah, indeed. Well, thanks, Red. Anytime. Yeah, thanks for joining us uh, all night. Uh, thanks to everyone <laughs> who's sticking through. This is a long intro of Graham ranting. Um, so, and then you stuck through. If you made it through that, the interview was great. And you're still here in the outro. Thanks for listening. Uh, of course, visit the webpage where you can support the show, grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, support our value for value model. Help uh, keep the show ad free. And help us pay the bills. Uh, what else do we got? We got the newsletter done by Justin, uh, grandamerica.ca slash news. The website done by Wayne Darnell. Yeah, Darnell Digital Inc. Um, big thanks to him. Check out the new site. Uh, fuck, what am I forgetting? Leave us a voicemail. <clears throat> spam, yeah. spam Graham. Check out the, uh, the backstage tab on the website uh, where we do a little bit of a live chat when we record and then also uh, yeah my email is graham at gramerica.com you can twitter twitter darren at uh, at gramerica and we'll put red pill junkies contact information in here as well eh red sure what's your twitter uh at red underscore peel underscore junkie i.e junkie yeah. with an i.e yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's a junkie with an i.e it's better than a junkie with a Y. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, review the show if you haven't. See, we've got a, a, a ton of listeners. The ratio of reviews to listeners is really uh, 
Really less than one percent. Yeah, somehow like so. higher side chats and and fucking expanded perspectives get way more reviews for some reason. So I want to catch up with their reviews. Yeah, come on, motherfuckers. They've been great. I'm not dissing <laughs> their reviews. We've had really good ones, but let's get some more. Yeah, there's a link right in the show notes right now. Go click on it. Uh, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you're listening. Um, you need to grimeamerica.ca slash iTunes. I'll bring you right there. Review the show, and uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, thanks yep. a lot for listening. Tell a friend. Yeah. yeah. Pat somebody on the back this week and uh, give them the <laughs> gift to America. Yeah, we don't really have any marketing scheme or plan, really. It's all word of mouth, so pyramids. We have a pyramid scheme, but not a marketing <laughs> scheme. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks, Red. Thanks, Scott. Uh, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Quand j'étais minot, les gars m'appelaient Elvis Presley Ce n'était pas un compliment, c'était pour se moquer Mais je voulais tout faire, je ne voulais pas rester fermé Si tu do the rock, tu peux aussi do the reggae Si tu do the reggae, tu peux sûrement do the rock Now, let's do the rock Yes, I got to reggae rock, swing and soul Yes, I got to reggae rock, swing and soul Yes, I got to reggae rock, swing and soul Now, let's do the soul Reggae rock to swing my soul. Reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got the reggae rock swing and soul. Now let's do the soul. Le secret, c'est le chaloupé. J'entends d'ici les puristes s'indigner. Mais je veux tout faire, je ne veux pas rester fermé. Si tu do the rock, tu peux aussi do the reggae. Si tu do the reggae, tu peux sûrement do the rock. Now, let's do the rock. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Now let's do the soul. Reggae rock to swing my soul. Reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Now let's do the soul. Yes, I got reggae, I got reggae to swing your soul. I got rock, yes, I got rock, I got rock to swing your soul. I got swing, yes, I got swing, I got swing to swing your soul. Yes, I got soul, yes, I got soul, I got soul to soul your soul. And I got reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Now let's do the soul. Reggae rock to swing my soul. Reggae rock swing and soul. Yes, I got reggae rock swing and soul. Now let's do the soul. Swing my soul. Swing my soul. Swing my soul. Oh!